1: In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, an invigorating shot of our favourite stories to set you up for the week. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio. And coming up, why the label Made in Space is no longer science fiction, where not to build your capital city, and a taste of our new series, The Secret History of the Future. Just our cover this week marked 10 years since Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy. Its collapse boiled over into the global financial crisis, the seismic effects of which are still being felt today.
0: Trade fell in every country on which the World Trade Organization reports. Credits supplied to the real economy fell by perhaps $2 trillion in America alone. To limit their indebtedness, governments resorted to austerity – It turbocharged today's populist surge, raising questions about income inequality, job insecurity and globalisation. But it also changed the financial system.
1: The question is, did it change it enough?
0: First, the good. Banks must now fund themselves with more equity and less debt. They depend less on trading to make money and on short-term wholesale borrowing to finance their activities. On both sides of the Atlantic, banks are subject to regular stress tests and must submit plans for their own orderly demise. Revamped pay policies should prevent a repeat of the injustice of bankers taking public money while pocketing huge pay packets.
1: But we argued that there are other lessons from 2008 that the world has so far failed to learn. The precise
0: shape of the next financial crisis is unclear. Otherwise, it would surely be avoided. But in one way or another, it is likely to involve property. Rich world governments have never properly reconciled a desire to boost home ownership with the need to avoid dangerous booms in household credit as in the mid-2000s. In America, the reluctance to confront this means that the taxpayer underwrites 70% of all new mortgage lending.
1: Then there's the greenback.
0: The crisis spread across borders because European banks ran out of the dollars they needed to pay back their dollar-denominated borrowing. The Fed acted as lender of last resort to the world, offering foreigners $1 trillion of liquidity. Since then, offshore dollar debts have roughly doubled. In the next crisis, America's political system is unlikely to let the Fed act as the backstop to this vast system, even after Donald Trump leaves the White House.
1: And in Europe, the rise of divisive nationalism, bringing its own dangers.
0: Until Europe shares more risks across national borders, whether through financial markets, deposit guarantees, or fiscal policy, the future of the single currency will remain in doubt. A chaotic collapse of the euro would make the crisis of 2008 look like a picnic.
1: So what is to be done to prepare for the next crisis? Read the briefing in this week's edition of The Economist to find out. Ten years on from Lehman, we've been looking for other systems deemed too big to fail. Patrick Fowles, our Schumpeter columnist, spoke to Helen Joyce on our Money Talks podcast about the globe-spanning smartphone industry.
0: It's about 5% of global GDP, and in a large number of countries, it accounts for a big chunk of exports. So 33% of exports from Taiwan, 15% from South Korea, 11% from Malaysia, and so on.
2: Okay, so it's too big to fail, but why would it fail?
0: Well, there are two big threats. One is simply that after 10 years of very rapid growth, the first iPhone was introduced in 2007, smartphones have stopped growing, so it's, it's got to saturation point. It just means that for hundreds of suppliers, suddenly the pie uh, has stopped growing in terms of the number of phones. The other risk is, is simply trade wars. This is one of the most globally interconnected um, industry trading systems there are.
1: Meanwhile, on Babbage, our science and tech show... We looked at the industries hoping to leave our little world behind for the label Made in Space. Already, some startups are testing the potential to make optic fiber and even print human organs on the International Space Station. We spoke to Jennifer Lopez of NASA's Center for the Advancement of Science in Space to find out more. So, similar to fiber optics with 3D bioprinting, the main challenge is the gravity vector. So in order to build structures, when we were talking about cardiac tissue, the nutrients and the stem cells uh, mixtures within bioinks, which is the basis for 3D bioprinting, needs to be at a high liquid uh, consistency. And there's no way to achieve this on Earth, at least not without some form of scaffolding uh, to support the ink. And scientists have yet to figure out a way to remove that scaffolding completely without damaging the structures of the completed organ. So theoretically, 3D bioprinting in space changes the game completely. How quickly what was once considered science fiction becomes fact. And with that in mind, we've just launched a new weekly podcast in collaboration with Slate. The Secret History of the Future is its name. It's hosted jointly by our deputy editor Tom Standage and from across the Atlantic by Slate's Seth Stevenson. Did the X Prize of the 1700s and its dubious outcome reveal a fundamental
3: truth about what drives innovation?
1: The competition itself is an amazing
4: thing to be part of because it's a catalyst for change.
3: Can a data breach of the 19th century French telegraph system teach us about modern cybersecurity? It's sort of delightful that it, the first network in history also had the first hack in history. Could investigating the death of the first pedestrian ever killed by an automobile help us avoid a pileup of mistakes as driverless cars take over our roads?
2: Whenever you introduce new advanced technology, people die. You know, when airplanes came along, they were very unsafe.
3: Might the complicated history of the fork suggest a wondrous future for Google Glass and for Japanese toilets?
1: The Secret History of the Future is published every Wednesday and you can find the first episode on iTunes or on your podcast app of choice by searching for Economist Radio. And if you like what you hear about the future and the past examples that gave rise to it, do give us a rating. It makes all the difference. And it even cheers Tom up. Most of us now spend a large part of our days staring at screens. But how is it affecting our eyes? According to a piece in our business section, even Xi Jinping, the Chinese
4: president, is getting worried. Last week, according to state media, China's leader read with dismay a report on the poor eyesight of his young citizens. Late on August 30th, the Ministry of Education and other bodies published a plan to prevent myopia in children and teenagers. Among encyclopedic instructions to beef up the training of optometrists and to adjust the height of school chairs, one sentence directs regulators to curb the number of total online games as well as that of new releases. It also guides them to restrict teens' playing time. That one sentence was big news because in China, gaming is a serious business. Ten cents stock promptly took a tumble, losing 5.6% on the following day of trading, thus shaving around $20 billion from the market value of the world's largest gaming company. On September 6th, the firm announced a new system to identify miners and limit their daily gaming time. But a little digging suggests the recommendation
1: wasn't just to save youngsters' eyesight. It's all part of a campaign to regulate what
4: some are calling electronic opium. Seven in ten internet users, or 560 million people, play games in China, estimates New Zoo, a research firm. Since last year, Communist Party mouthpieces have been excoriating games companies for poisoning young minds. The Myopia Directive makes no mention of putting controls on other recreational screen time activities that might harm eyes, such as enormously popular short video apps. Recent research suggests myopia may have more to do with insufficient sunlight, so maybe a little less time on the console mightn't do any harm after all.
1: Let's turn now to the Middle East and Africa section. Our correspondent explained why in Congo, managing the traffic is remarkably lucrative. Every
2: driver in charge of a spluttering yellow taxi or battered local bus, nicknamed Spirits of Death for their shoddy maintenance must pay a protection fee to traffic officers. This is done by sticking a fist out of the window at certain junctions on the boulevard and dropping a note worth 30 cents into a waiting policeman's hand. If this money is not paid, the officers will find ways in which the vehicle is breaching the law and impose a large fine.
1: They have targets to hit because their bosses then demand that
2: they pay it forward. To maintain a lucrative position on the boulevard, a police officer must thank the superior who put him there. Each day, he will have to arrest a pre-negotiated number of drivers and escort them to the police station, where his superior will demand a bigger backhander for himself.
1: All this makes being a cabbie in Kinshasa require a particular set of skills. For Kinshasa's weary drivers, dealing with the police requires
2: charm, negotiation skills and unflappability. When your correspondent was taking a taxi in Kinshasa, a drunk policeman half-launched himself through the window to demand money. The driver simply laughed. Once the officer had retreated just enough, he sped off.
1: Traffic police have a much harder job of it in some places than others. A piece in our international section took a look at those cities built in exactly the wrong place, meaning that they're constantly jammed.
3: Manila in the Philippines is scrunched between a bay in the west and a lagoon in the east. A car driving through the middle of the city is like a grain of sand seeping slowly past the neck of an hourglass. Dhaka in Senegal is surrounded on three sides by the Atlantic Ocean – forcing suburban commuters to crawl along the same east-west roads. Auckland, Monrovia, New York and Rio de Janeiro are similarly pinched for space to grow.
1: Bridges and tunnels only get you so far, so some governments have come up with a different idea. Start again somewhere completely new.
3: 30 kilometres east of central Dhaka, a huge billboard advertises a forthcoming metropolis to be called Yamnadio Lake City. Renderings by the developer, Semagroup, suggest Dubai, where Group is based, with added curves and African flourishes. The government hopes that 300,000 people will live there eventually, easing pressure on the existing city. But Dubai wasn't
1: built in a day.
3: There is not much to see yet, besides a conference centre, a hotel and lots of scrub. We pray that it works, says Ibrahima Indai, an urban planner in Dhaka. But he doubts that a new city will be enough to unclog the old one.
1: And finally, we receive reader and listener letters from all over the world. But this one particularly tickled us on the team this week. Ashley Hall from Singapore wrote in to tell us why some private passions are even better when they're shared. On a recent trip to rural Costa Rica, our minibus driver asked me if I'd like to play my music from the bus's speaker system. I apologised that I wasn't in the mood and instead wanted to listen to the audio edition of a newspaper that he probably wouldn't like. On inquiring which newspaper, he promptly pulled out his $50 Chinese smartphone and showed me his subscription to Economist Radio. We enjoyed listening to it together for the rest of the four-hour journey. Perhaps we should all be more open about our addictions. So do take us along on your next long journey. That's your lot for this week's tasting menu. But if you're hooked, you can find out more of our good stuff online at economist.com or on your podcast app from Economist Radio. And do go ahead and subscribe. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Anne McElvoy in London.
4: This is The Economist.